Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Yes, you are listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and good to be here briefly out of my house, still with that slightly husky tone that sometimes comes from wearing a face mask for a long period of time. As we Melbournians have retreated into stage four restrictions, hang in there, friends. You may be alone, but we are definitely with you. Before I start, though, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm broadcasting today on the lands of the original storytellers of this place, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, here where their sovereignty was never ceded. I pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and those of all other <clears throat> Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Now, she is the author of three fiction titles, but Mia Walsh recently released a memoir, Money for Something, describing her real-life experiences as a young sex worker. In this clear-eyed exploration, Mia knocks down harmful stereotypes while delving into her personal struggles with substance abuse, self-harm and undiagnosed mental health issues, all with a wry humour and a lightness of touch. Mia joins me shortly to talk about the art of writing memoir and describing real life on the page. And this is going to be a long form interview. We'll have a chance to hear from Mia for the whole of the show or more more of the show than we normally get a chance to. So I'm really looking forward to that. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Dresses are fraught for me, but here in these oil-scented halls, dresses take on a new meaning. They are a way to enhance my sexuality, to signal to a customer what they could be in for should they choose me. Years later, I will sometimes come across an old work dress and I will clutch it to me, breathing the smell of sweat and the particular scent of old massage oil that permeates the fabric. That's the thing. That's the thing. Once a work dress, always a work dress. You can't get that smell out. You can't take those feelings out. That's an edited extract from Mia Walsh's new book, Money for Something, a clear-eyed memoir about the author's experiences as a young sex worker. In it, Mia knocks down harmful sex work stereotypes while delving into her personal struggles with substance abuse, self-harm and undiagnosed mental health issues, all with a wry humour and lightness of touch. Mia joins me now to discuss her book and the art of describing real life on the page. Mia, uh, welcome to Backstory. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, your memoir covers a very, very specific time in your life from your late teens to your early 20s. Can you mm-hmm. introduce the book to listeners and explain why this time and why this story? Um, so... I think even as I was living it, I was planning on writing about it one day. 
Um, so now felt like the time. It's almost 20 years since the events in the book. And I, I kind of felt like I was losing the connection to that time. So I thought that I should probably write it out now before I forgot. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's certainly, uh, this actually kind of leads to another question about the book, but I'd like you to kind of really describe what it is that the book is essentially about, what, what period of time and what experiences it covers. Okay, so it's set from 2001 to 2004, um, and it details my entrance to the sex industry. I started working in massage parlours in Sydney in at the turn of the millennium. Um, and it's a story about sex work, but it's also a story about mental illness and loneliness and need um, and finding a place where you fit or not. I found myself thinking quite a lot while I was reading this book about how you managed to get such a liveliness um, and such a sense of actually uh, being in the moment um, of that kind of young adult that you were. And, I mean, to put this in context, you are describing some quite harrowing periods of your life, particularly around substance abuse and, and mental health issues. Um, but you do it in a way that really does make it feel present while kind of describing it with a certain amount of sardonic humour and distance. So can you talk a little bit about how you managed to sort of achieve that, um, that distance, if you like, enough to, but at the same time, a real sense of, of being in the moment? Um, so I decided to write it in first person, uh, sorry, in present tense um, on purpose to bring that immediacy to it, or at least uh, attempt to. <laughs> um, and I, I also had a lot of journals from this period. Um, so even though the memories are a little scrambled, um, I had access to some of the content and the details of the content, but th the feelings never went away. So it was sort of easy to grasp onto them and write them out. Yeah, you do. I mean, it's a, I, and I want to, I do want to talk about this a little bit more uh, later on in, in the show about how you kind of slip in between uh, you then and you now, um, or the writer at a later period of time. And, and I want to discuss that more, but I do want to stay in this, um, in this kind of, you know, how you've written it in the present tense tense approach. I do think you have achieved a real sense of immediacy. It does <clears throat> very much feel at times like you are in the voice and mindset of that character at that time, as, as you as a young person, who I can only imagine is not you, you know, at that age now. Um, but you've yeah. managed to channel it very effectively. And it's interesting to me that you've talked about using diary material. Do you think it's almost essential in a, in a memoir of this nature to have had kind of a recorded diary entry that really gives you some of the, the thinking and feeling and even some of the really vibrant scenes that you managed to sort of relate in the book? Um, not necessarily. I don't think it's essential. But... It was just helpful, especially because I did take so many drugs at the time. Um, my memory is a little scrambled. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I don't think that you need to to have sort of, um, uh, what are they called, like a, 
historical um, sort of uh, first-person kind of historical documents in regards to that period of your life that you're writing about. Um, it, it just helped to sort of grasp some of the finer details that I didn't quite remember, and it also helped to sort of trust me back into that time. Um, I actually... I actually destroyed a lot of my journals from that period um, because I always thought that if somebody, like if something happened to me and somebody found them, they would think that I was very unhappy, but mm. I wasn't always. I just tended to write a lot when I was very unhappy. Yeah, I um, mean... Like- in actuality, I'm quite a positive person, even though I do suffer from a lot of depression. Yeah, in in reality, I guess you're describing what many writers do do to process the world and their own experiences of it is is to write things down. You know, I guess I ask this because one of the things that um, I really did think about while reading your book was, you know, how does one really relate the past in a way that feels authentic? I mean, this is a a question I'm going to ask you quite a lot is, you know, how do you render um, the past into a story? How do you render life into a story uh, that you can, one can call nonfiction? I mean, is that possible? Or do you think that there has to be this kind of sleight of hand that does in fact rely on the unreliable, um, you know, memory? In fact, the, the writer is the unreliable memoirist of their own Life. Do you think that's an essential part of every memoir? Maybe not every memoir, but definitely, I mean, I would definitely call myself an unreliable narrator. Um, when you do as many drugs as I was doing at this stage, obviously there are things that aren't necessarily um, easily accessible to you, memory-wise. Um, but kind of wanted so in an early draft of the memoir that I started writing many years ago and I'm really glad I didn't write it years ago because it would have been a really different book but I started the book with this sort of piece in italic saying um this 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 is the closest to the truth that I can get this is how I remember it um and whether or not that kind of gives me away as a bit of an unreliable narrator, I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, it's... it's. I, I, I feel like it's... Um, when you've sort of gone through these experiences and sort of lived life with these heightened feelings, they're really easy to remember or to, to throw yourself back into because they were so strong at the time. Um, so that they always sort of stay with you. Yeah. And these are quite, some of these are quite extreme experiences. There is that moment when you're a young person as well, that everything feels particularly heightened. These are things, you know, as a young adult, you're often doing or, or feeling or experiencing things for the first time. And there's something about the imprint that that leaves on you. Things are never so vivid as when you are that age, when everything, you know, you feel like you have no skin around the world and you particularly, as described in this book, are exactly that kind of character. Um, I think you even... You talk about having no boundaries or feeling raw to the world, and there's definitely mm. a sense that that has left its left its mark on you in some indelible way. That that you know naturally leads it to become, you know, an artifact that you'll write about. 
Um, I do want to touch on this, and, and just for listeners who may have sensitivities around this uh, or it might be a trigger, I do want to ask questions about some of the central themes of the book around um, mental health, self-harm and substance abuse. Uh, that is quite a central part of the book. Um, handled, I must say, in an extremely, um, you know, in an extremely kind of objective way with a lightness of touch while actually really describing things so it's you're certainly not pulling any punches about what has happened to you and what you've experienced can I talk about this because you know in it um, you describe the young version of you um, taking what can only be described as an extraordinary amount of drugs. Um, <laughs> it's certainly uh, not unknown, I'm sure, to many listeners or, you know, to many broadcasters that, um, that in fact, that is something that they may have experienced a, a version of in their youth. But, but for a young, petite uh, person, you certainly <laughs> were consuming vast quantities um, and you, you do reflect um, with your slightly older hat on that, that much of this is, is then kind of also, you know, a self-medicating regime that, um, that you later, you know, learn why. Um, you don't talk about the, your mental illness except in the, in, the, in the understanding that it took a decade for you to, to really get a grasp on that experience. Um, so can you talk a bit about this? Because you do really go there with some of these experiences and this is really the, the kind of crucial heart of memoir. You have to put yourself into a slightly risky or dangerous place to really get to the heart of things. How do you do that somewhat safely for yourself? Mm, I mean, <laughs> ask me in a couple of years. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that when I wrote it, I mean, it sounds stupid because it's, it's like a cognitive dissonance of I wrote it as if no one would read it so I could go all in, but at the same time I knew people would read it, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, so I had to sort of hold both ideas in my head at the same time. But luckily, I'm kind of good at that. Um, and I, I, I'm I, glad I wrote it now because I am able to bring that lightness to it. Um, to me, everything is funny in retrospect. Um, I guess that's how I deal with things. So, and I haven't really... <laughs> black, bleak sense of humor. It's often getting me, it often gets me into trouble because people don't quite get it. Um, things that I think are hilarious. Um, people, you know, I'll post something on Twitter and, and get 10 messages saying, are you okay? Whereas I'm, I'm just making a joke. Um, so I've, I've learned like long ago that my sense, there's something very wrong with my sense of humor, but I really wanted to deal with these subjects in a really, like, I remember reading a review that said, that described the memoir as upbeat. And that really pleased me because it's about hectic things, but at the same time it has a, a sense of humour and a sense of, like, maybe hope. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely feel that. This book, um, you know, it, firstly it's written in such a way that you move through the story quite quite quickly it's it's easy to read uh, which is a weird thing to say because you're actually objectively describing some really quite harrowing experiences I did find at moments I, I'll be honest that there's some things about my younger self that I sort of that sort of chimed with some of the experiences where you know one doesn't have a great sense of oneself and you you do have a clear-eyed view of you at that per as that young person 
Um, but you're also, you know, you're quite generous with them as an older person while being, but while having the kind of self-talk that you must have had at the time very clearly mm. on the page. Mm. So, you know, I do feel as though, um, you know, that that is handled um in fact, I've, I've introed this uh, this segment by talking about the lightness of touch that you have. I think that mm. is a real art form, and I guess I, I really want to know: Did you feel like? Did you feel as though you had to really uh, cut things out to get to that lightness, or as you say, do you just naturally have a quiet, black sense of humour, and you just found aspects of it funny, or did you have to kind of, you know, quite go back over it and go? Eh, do I need to lighten this up a little or do I need to leave or change how I've, I've expressed things to make it flow better and or to add in some of the, the actual genuine pain on the page, mm. conversely? Um, I tried to keep it in a balance um, and that's, that's something that I do in, in my fiction. Um, so I always like to, I mean, I've, I've written dystopian, I write science fiction um, in my other life. And um, I've always known the power of having to include lightness in the midst of harrowing description because, like, basically, I mean, like, basically, I don't want to be a complete bummer. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 that's and that's what I do, you know, in in my fiction, um, and that's what I do, I guess, in my memoir. Um, I didn't really have to cut out a lot of stuff. I mean, there were a few things that I thought were a bit too personal and maybe a bit too painful to talk about, um, and a few things that were actually really lovely things that I wanted to keep for myself um, and didn't share. Um, for instance, I. I had a cat throughout this entire experience and I, I feel as if she was part of saving my life. But I didn't include it because that's mine. It, it, that felt too personal. And whereas talking about, you know, having sex with strangers and, and giving handjobs for money, that didn't feel as personal as the story of, of me and my cat and her the way that having a pet gave me a reason to stay alive. This, yeah. this, this is a wonderful uh, observation of yours and I'd love to pick this up um, and talk about it a little bit more uh, about, you know, how to kind of what to leave in and what to leave out when writing mm. memoir. Um, but uh, I just want to introduce to listeners who might have just joined us uh, that you're listening to Backstory and Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm speaking with author Mia Walsh about her memoir, Money for Something, uh, describing her experiences uh, as a young person, as a, a young sex worker and her, her struggles with substance abuse and, and an incipient mental health issue. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. And I'm speaking with author Mia Walsh in a nice long-form interview about her memoir, Money for Something, about her experiences as a young sex worker and struggles with substance abuse and undiagnosed mental health issues, among many other things. Um, Mia, this book, um, 
among, um, you know, obviously we've discussed some of the central themes of the book and I would say the heart of it is really a young person quite raw to the world, uh, really learning about herself while obviously um, battling some quite serious sort of issues of her own um, while entering this industry that has around it such a great deal of stigma. And I I wanted to talk about how you've handled uh, this part of the book because it it does seem to be quite an important role that you you are playing here. It's certainly something that you've stated is an ongoing issue for those in the sex work industry, that there are assumptions made about them that are um, erroneous. And I I want to, to go into, and hopefully I've marked after this page, I was furiously folding down um, pages to talk uh, about some of these sections. Um, but you've actually kind of described here. Um, I'm just going to read. I'm going to read this section here. Um, There are a few generalisations I would make about sex workers. They are all extremely interesting and complex people. Most of them are good people in their own various ways. They're strong and capable, working a job with not only a high emotional output input, but a job that receives a great deal of stigma from all sides, the wider world as well as those close to them. Sometimes even from the receptionist paying them out at the end of the night, even though sex work pays their wages too. Sometimes the stigma comes even from the very people who are consuming their services. In the book, you also describe some of this internalised stigma um, that that means that people in different parts of the sex work industry, for example, those who work in parlours versus full service um, industry, uh, full service jobs, um, might also have views about one another. Um, can you talk about this section of the book and how you've you've handled it? Um, so the, they call the. I guess the the hierarchy. I'm I'm doing air quotes, even though you can't see me. Um, the hierarchy, and it's this really toxic thing where I guess it's a case of women. Oh, it's so hard to describe. It's a case of women sort of not supporting each other's choices and seeing. Especially with sex work, and especially, look, back then there wasn't, there was sort of very little sex worker pride. Um, You know, being out was really rare. And so I feel like I'm coming from sort of a different perspective than, say, um, Rita Teresa's memoir, Come, which just came out as well. where she came into the industry where there was a lot more, uh, was just a little bit more open. Um, whereas back in the day, like 20 years ago, there was a lot of stigma. Um, and and people I was working with, you know, didn't they, they didn't tell their partners that they, they worked in the industry um, because of that stigma. And I think the hardest thing too is, is, you know, not only the stigma from occasional receptionists, like a, a lot of receptionists were really great um, and really, really supportive, um, but, you know, some weren't. And, and you also get stigma from the customers themselves. Um, I, re- I remember occasionally getting, you know, having customers say to me, oh, you know, I, I don't like going to, to brothels and getting full service because it feels, you know, this way or that to me. Um, and so it's like, 
I don't know, I felt like erotic massage back then felt a bit like sex work light in that somebody could get their sexual needs met by a professional and hold it in their head that it was somehow inherently better than perhaps having sex with somebody. Um, you know, I don't think that this is a great <laughs> sort of way to think, um, but it is, it is, it is a way that, that some people did think. Um, and I remember repeatedly being told, like, you're too good to be here by customers or you're too smart to be here. But, like, what does that mean? That, you know, should, should, should you only consume these services from somebody who you think is less than or a bad person? Like, I just didn't, I never, I felt like they, they thought they were complimenting me, but I actually found it really insulting because it's like I am I'm no better or worse than anybody who works in this industry or does specific activities. I just do what I do, you know, I, I just do what I do. I do what I'm comfortable with. And and I just never quite understood why some customers had to tell themselves that story. It's a really interesting um, world that you describe in that sense because, as you've said, you are talking about a particular period in time, the early 2000s, um, in which you were um, you're, you're specifically describing a period of time that you were engaged in in the sex industry um, and particular areas of the sex industry. Um, but I think it's really interesting because you do reflect as an older person that this remains a stigma and, you know, names in the book, um, you use the names that people used as working names. Uh, you yourself, I believe, wrote this pseudonymously. Uh, and I'm interested in, in the fact that, as you've said, there is a lot more, quote, people out as sex workers. Mm. Uh, Twitter has been a really great platform for, for sex workers, both to talk to one another, to perhaps even find customers or to describe, to have work uh, associations, but have they have experience and people have um, talked about experiencing stigmatisation or even being, as it's known, soft-blocked on Twitter. Um, Shadow-banned. Shadow Shadow-banned, that's right, as well, on Twitter, having their posts not turn up in timelines, um, you know, because of... Yeah, because of the nature of the content or because of who is posting. And that sort of stuff continues to be an issue. There's many more things that we could discuss around that but that aren't actually involved in your book. So how important do you feel it is for books like yours to be talked about now, particularly because it also sheds light on, on how far we've come and how far we still need to go uh, with regards to perceptions of, of this particular industry? Look, it's... I will say that it's only because of out sex workers who are, are in the um, in I, I guess out publicly in Australia um, that I felt comfortable enough to come out because I, I did write it pseudonymously, but that was to separate it from my other genre of work, uh, my other genre of writing. Um, so, without these women who have already done this work, like, I never would have felt comfortable enough to come out. So, I, I'm talking, you know, women like Jane Green, um, Gala Vanting, Rita Therese, um, uh, Bella Green, like, and, and so many more. 
um, like too many to mention, out sex workers who have taken those steps in the past before me that made it so I finally felt safe enough to come out. Um, but at the same time, I was I was pretty prepared for this to potentially, you know, affect my career. Yeah, that's a really... And, and it wasn't necessarily the sex work that I was most worried about. It was the mental illness stuff. <laughs> I was the, most, the thing I was most scared of was people finding out just how nuts I am. <laughs> Look, I, I mean, this book is really... I, I definitely would encourage those who, obviously, you know, trigger warnings um, allowed... Um, I would encourage people to read the book because you do actually, there's a few really key things quite apart from, you know, really reflecting on your own struggles and how you, you know, how they shaped you as a person. I think you really do offer some some really quite um, useful and clear-eyed approaches to to really understanding why certain language isn't okay to use um, around sex workers, why it might be seen as a slur, or why uh, why it is that um, that language has shifted to to terminology like sex work, for example, as opposed to other usages that used to happen. Uh, you do shed a light on the industry that's incredibly humane, while being, you know, you certainly like with any job there are deep flaws. Um, but I did find it interesting uh, comparing, you know, your sort of experiences even. Even in the worst of the the massage parlors, um, in terms of kind of you know the uh, you know ones that weren't perhaps um, working as well or weren't treating their staff as well, compared to say something like cafe work, <laughs> which was <laughs> underpaid and extremely um, you know you talked about uh, the kinds of levels of um, you know in the early two thousands of the the experiences of sexual harassment that you had uh, while at work in a cafe that that never seemed to be an issue with you in uh, in the sex work industry. Oh, I mean, look, if I'm going to get sexually harassed, I want to be paid well for it. <laughs> and in cafes, I never was. <laughs> yeah, it's a really it's uh it's such a fascinating read uh, on these levels as well. I did want to talk about some other. Um, Elements that uh, that brings us back again to to the writing um, of this too. I feel like uh, I want to know firstly about what kinds of advice you would give to to emerging memoirists. You discussed, um, you know, leaving out things that were very deeply personal to you, which included, for example, your cat. Uh, not mm. talking about your cat because that felt too personal. Whereas these other things that you talk about that that seem more uh, personal, if you like, actually are <laughs> things you felt that you could write more objectively about. What advice would you give to memoirs? Because it's certainly a question I teach writing and a lot of students ask me about how do you write things that might uh, hurt or upset other people or that, that you feel mm. uncomfortable about? How does one do that? Look, I I try to keep a real balance between the actions of other people and the actions of myself and trying to understand the role that we both played in it. Um, so, you know, I, I do talk about sort of a terrible boyfriend that I had, um, and I and I do mention, you know, some very problematic things that, that he did. But at the same time, I also try and mention the fact that, you know, I was no, I was no you know, picnic to deal with either. Like, I, we all play our part in the events of our lives. And some things are done to done to us, um, and some things, you know, we actually participate in. Um, and so, 
I just tried to keep that balance. And look, I, I'm just the kind of person who doesn't, like, I don't hate anybody. So I'm not going to talk negatively about somebody in print because that's just not the kind of person that I am. Like, I don't, I, I don't hate anyone and I don't hold anything against anybody from my past. And the reason why I'm glad that I wrote it now is because I have a lot stronger a sense of that. Um, so I, I guess it's... And look, I also ask permission from several of the, I guess you would call them, main characters if I could write about them. And then uh, when the, the final draft was done, I sent it to them and said, you have power of veto over this because this is your story too. It's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because one of the things, one of the arguments for writing memoir is that you're telling your story and everyone does have a right to a certain extent to tell their story. Uh, mm. It is a complicated balance. And I really appreciate you outlining your process um, of seeking uh, permission where you felt um, that was necessary as well. Um, but I mean, it's sort of an interesting thing because you've also done, as we discussed a little bit earlier, changing names and even events or, um, you know, compressing characters into into a single character. These are very mm. common tools yes. of a yes. memoirist. Um, you know, do you feel like that's, it's a sort of interesting sleight of hand in a sense because we are marketing a book in this sense as a, a non-fiction. Uh, do you think that, like, really there is any such thing as a truly non-fiction book when it comes to this type of writing? Well, I mean, memory is really subjective. It's the same as, say, being a witness in a in a trial. You know, everybody's memory is coloured by their experience of stuff, and there's no difference between that kind of thing and a, and, a, and writing a memoir. Um, everyone's going to remember events in a different way because of how they felt and what they were going through and how they grew up and the things that they've done in their lives and the things that have been done to them. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a, it's just a really difficult balance. Um, um, one thing that I didn't do is, and, and I've received like some criticism about this in that I didn't really write about any period other than this exact time. Um, and I think that I don't, I think that some people don't quite understand that not everybody has the freedom to talk about their upbringing safely or comfortably or not in my case, but I do know a memoirist but, uh, who, who had this problem sometimes legally, you know. Um, so I have to be what honest. I have to do with- yeah, I feel like it's a, it's a really interesting thing that you're talking about going backwards because I actually was feeling as though I wanted to I, – I want to read more about your story afterwards. Mm. Um, so I think you might have mm. also – Dobbed yourself in to write a follow up. I, I mean, I, no, I did that on purpose. <laughs> um, I've, I've, I wasn't going to. I was, wasn't going to blow my whole world on one book. <laughs> Not when I've got like a you know twenty years on and off of really interesting experiences in the industry to talk about. I, I I'd really like to write several. And you know, as an Australian author, I, I, that was like a, a a definitely planned move because <laughs> I need the money. <laughs> But I did cut you off a little there. What what, what was the, the final thought that you had on um, on writing some of those those earlier parts of your history? Uh, say uh, about my, my past, yeah. like uh, the past not mentioned in the book. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's just... 
I didn't feel comfortable. Um, I'd, and I didn't feel safe to talk about, you know, my family, my family life. Um, I don't have their permission. Um, and I just wanted to avoid that whole mess. I think in the future I actually would like to write about my, my experiences growing up because I, I, that obviously did really affect me as a person, um, later on, um, and maybe, you know, con- contributed to, to some of my problematic behaviours. Um, but at, at the time, you know, I, I, I didn't have... I just didn't... Like, I, I wouldn't want somebody to write about me without consent. And, like, I, I, maybe that's really naive, but, you know, I think maybe I'm a little bit of a naive person in that, you know, if I wouldn't want somebody to do something to me, I, therefore I wouldn't do it to them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And look, uh, Maya, yeah. I, I really appreciate you talking about that side of it because there's many different schools of thought on this and you have still managed to write a really cracking, uh, honest, um, wry and touching memoir uh, without needing, obviously, to to breach any of your own ethical guidelines, which I think is, is really quite an incredible feat. So, Well, I mean, I mean... Done. Part of me did have that notion of like, you know, if you didn't want me to write about this, you should have acted better. <laughs> but at the same time too, you know, like it's just not, I don't like, to, like, I don't like talking crap about people. <laughs> like, especially not in print. Like that's not, that's just not who I am. That's not the kind of person I am. You know, I, I, I'm, I love the people who I've loved in the past. You know, like I, I, recognize the, the place that they have in my life and you know especially in regards to relationships you know if I love somebody at, at one stage like I just can't forget about that you know I I yeah I just I'm, I'm not the kind of person who would who who holds grudges or wants to talk crap about people behind their back (laughs) or or, or not necessarily behind their back. (laughs) Mia, it's hard to believe that we've been speaking for an entire show and I still feel like there's so much to talk about in your book. Mm. Uh, There's many, many themes and ideas we haven't touched on um, that I now would very much recommend if people are interested in finding out more, they buy your book, um, Money for Something. Uh, subtitle uh, Sex Work Drugs Life and Need Mia Walsh thank you for being so generous with your time today and joining me on Backstory thank you for having me and thank you for like really insightful questions I um, I hope I didn't ramble too much or go off topic it's <laughs> fantastic thank you so much Mia thank you that was, of course, Mia Walsh uh, whose book Money for Something is out now through Echo Publishing that is uh, all we have time for. Incredible uh, to think that I got to spend all that time uh, with an author talking about their book um, and the craft of writing. Uh, I would like to thank my guest once more, Mia Walsh. And uh, again, if you want to find out more, uh, you can obviously purchase her book. We do have a little bit more time on our own these days to indulge in some reading um, and I think it's an interesting one if the, for those who have ever considered writing uh, something about their own lives. It is a complex and, and nuanced art, the art of memoir. So um, I definitely would say listen to some of the advice that Mia has on that topic. Independently yours, Triple R.
102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.